You are listening to the Doddler's Philosophy Podcast, Episode 43, Rorty's Mirror of Nature, Part 2. Obviously, I'm getting myself back into podcast shape here. Continue. <laughs> Three, two, one. The Doddler's Philosophy is an amateur reduction of two dudes in a basement with no association, affiliation, cooperation, or combination with any other entities, primate or otherwise. The views expressed may or may not have merit, and the listeners are encouraged to argue amongst themselves. If you wish to express appreciation for the endeavors undertaken, please visit patreon.com slash philosophy to support the show. Send an email to doddlersphilosophy at gmail.com or rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For updates and downtakes, follow on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or subscribe on your favorite podcast application. I have a question for you. Oh, shit. How do we know when we have two ways of talking about the same thing rather than the description of two different things? Oh, fuck. My first kind of tongue-in-cheek answer is, well, we say we're talking about the same thing. Um, in other words, Rorty says, nothing in general will resolve every tension between saying, A... You're talking about exes, all right, but everything you say about them is false. <laughs> and saying instead, since practically nothing you're saying is true about exes, you can't be talking about exes. Right. Was Aristotle wrong about motion being divided into natural and forced, or was he talking about something different than we talk about when we talk about motion? Or the whole, like, uh, whether the ship of Theseus endured the change of each of its planks. Yeah. Well, we can break it down even more Korjipskian style and just really, A does not equal A, period, you know, right? Oh, it's impossible to talk about the same thing? Well, I mean, that would be the one extreme. Mm -hmm. Sort of a compromise would be Hofstetterian and say, like, A is approximately A, and then the, the, the project is, well, how... Are those approximations, how close are they, and can we even know what that is? But if I was to say, take a font of the letter A and another font of the letter A, would you be able to say it's pointing in the same direction? Mm -hmm. Or would you say those are two completely separate things? You know, font of an A, capital A, in Times New Roman versus Garamond or whatever, right? Are they the same A? When you hit the what apparently is an A on your keyboard... You know, can you read it? Like, how, what's the agreement level there? Mm -hmm. I would say there's some semblance of agreement, which he's like, no! But, you know, Rorty's like, <laughs> no, no! But, like, I would say that with, a, with respect to I could read your notes and read them out loud and you could say that I read them correctly. No, or you wouldn't put the feeling into them. <laughs> That's why it's not the same. Well, so yeah, like what degree of similarity and difference are we talking about here? Well, the context in which he asks this question 
multiple times and brings up this distinction is in the context of attempting to elucidate what people are supposed to mean by minds or qualia or consciousness or any of these things. Uh, and this is the whole Wittgenstein beetle in the box thing or whatever, right? We've all got these little boxes and supposedly there's a beetle inside and I can open mine but you can't look in there and I can describe to you what my beetle looks like and then you can open your box and say, oh yeah, my beetle looks that, yeah. It's kind of iridescent blue-green, it's got six legs and some pincers and whatever and we can think that we're reaching some sort of concordance when we describe our beetles. But with something that is putatively, inherently private, like consciousness or minds are supposed to be, again, without this view from nowhere adjudicator, how could we possibly ever know if we're talking about the same thing, or two beetles that are of the same species, or if we're saying things... Let's say what we describe isn't the same. You're like, well, mine's got four legs, and I got eight legs, or whatever. Are we talking about different things, or are we saying different things about the same species, or whatever? I don't know. Did you and that it just can't be resolved. One. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Losing my metaphors. Well, I don't know. It's like, a, is, it, is adjudication important, or appreciation important? Like, when you watch a David Attenborough narrated nature program, he's like, ah, the iridescent beetle, da, 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 and you see this thing crawl across some forest floor or whatever it is, and you're like, okay, and he's like, iridescence of blue and green. There's a shit ton of inference or whatever that I'm doing right now. I'm like, what is there? You know, if I'm like six, I'm like, iridescence, you know, if I'm even thinking iridescence when I'm six, but whatever, you know, like something along those lines. If I've not encountered things. It's kind of like the idea of like someone says or pronounces something wrong, but they've read it, you know, enough to know to pronounce it at all, mm -hmm. like, and they pronounce it wrong. Like, I'm, which I'm sure we've exemplified a million times in the history of this podcast. Seal and Canis. Yeah. So I mean, that I, reminds me of, of a piece I forgot oh, to mention, and it's a claim that I thought maybe we could talk about for a second if you had any comments. But Rorty makes the claim in the edifying section. All edification must begin with acculturation. And that's what I kind of heard when you said, well, yeah, as kids, we all watched the Attenborough, and he told us about beetles and their yeah, yeah. iridescence. Right. That was, to me, something... It's one of those memes that when I hear it, I say, oh, that's good. I think I agree with that, but I never noticed. I never thought about it that way, like a stand-up comedy bit. Oh, yeah, totally. It works because I get it, but I never thought about it. So, is that true? Is that what are we like about all edification begins with acculturation? Well, given the context of what we're talking about, my thinking just right off the bat is just you got to start somewhere, you know? Yeah. And so, if that means it's Adam Richard or whatever, David Attenborough film or, you know, documentary, then that's where it starts. And. You don't have to have the same starting point, though, right? To get the word iridescence or something like that. Nope. But maybe there's a g overall culture or something that the word iridescence gets applied. And so over at the David Attenborough corner, you've got iridescence being acquired. Maybe, uh, you know, you have a dad who thinks it's cool to wear iridescent shiny sunglasses. And he's on his fishing boat flying through the harbor. And he's like, yeah! 
iridescence. And this, you know, your mom's like, Jesus Christ. Uh, you know. And everything's connected. This reminds me of a Gord Downey lyric about how after she heard the word iridescence, everything was iridescent for a while. Like, after you learn these things, then you see them everywhere. Yes. You know. So, yeah, so maybe there's that component. It's gotta, you got to start somewhere. And usually we start when we're kids or as we're getting older, you know. Uh, yeah. Or you start in Philosophy 101 where you learn about what... Descartes, Locke, and Kant said, you know, or you start as a human race wherever you are, and you have to live through Descartes, Locke, and Kant, oh. and you got to get stepping stones through the morass, as Andrew Cuomo would tell us, right? Jesus. <laughs> yes, he would. Uh, With his nipple so, rings and all. What? Oh, yeah. New information. Nipple Breaking news. news. Nipple piercings. <laughs> nipple piercings. They Gossip. Just, it's hard to know what else they would be wearing a like white shirt and it's like you've got some strange looking nipples or you've got like a rod sticking through it or something you're welcome Doug. i just remember him doing a kind of like trumpian thing where he seemed really proud of himself for learning the word morass and he was like <laughs> we're gonna get through covid like one stone through the morass and he kept repeating the word morass over and over fucking christ politicians oh yeah not self-evaluating. Anyway. Okay, so with the question in mind, how do you know if you're talking about the same thing in different ways, or if you're talking about different things? And now going into the whole project of attempting to not argue against, but diagnose and satirize the concept of minds. Rorty looks at the DLK tradition and notices and points out that they make what he considers a very arbitrary unification between the phenomenal and the intentional. Or, as in slightly more contemporary terminology, between qualia and semantics. Uh, colors and meanings, or you know, how things seem, the properties they seem to have to our consciousness as we appreciate them, and the whatever the meaning of our sentences are. And he goes into this in-depth, of course, that we can't do verbally on the podcast. But he's saying, <laughs> the people that believe in minds and the mental, those are two, I think he probably says the only two, but it doesn't matter, there might be more. But at least those two things are unified in as hallmarks of mentality. You can have phenomenal properties or intentional properties. You can be about something, or you can have a qualitative character. That's weird. Why would we unite, under a single abstraction, phenomenal properties and intentional properties? I don't know if any of this is going to ring with my scientistic unite, colleague uh, over here. Why would we unite the redness of red in the apple... Yeah. With the sentence, the redness of red in the apple. Well, with the... That that has a meaning. Or whatever, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Because he's saying that's what all of these mentalists do. The old school ment They all think that, well, these are the two different things. There's, uh, there's pains and there's beliefs. And both of those things are done by minds and only minds. No rocks have any pains or beliefs. But humans have pains and beliefs. But 
then he wants to draw our attention to how odd is it that we're uniting something that different as a pain and a belief. Okay. And saying that only a human mind can do those two things. Because isn't that as different as a fish and a unicycle? Or whatever. And like, what? What? It's just, it seems odd once you attend to it. Okay. Yeah? Well, do your quote, because you've got your book in your hand. And I'm like, God damn it. Let's see oh, what he says. Well, it's not, it's a hard one. Because what are these called again? These little squares? There's oh, quite, like, you know, like a, I mean, some call them a matrix or a table or whatever. Oh, that's it? Just Punnett a table? Square, okay. I thought there was, what? Punnett square. But that's, that's what I was thinking. That's okay. for genetics, but yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, he's got this little table where he's saying, the entire universe under this metaphysics can be broken up into four different categories. That with phenomenal and intentional properties, mm -hmm. which is like contemporaneous occurrent thoughts or mental images. Think of a purple cow. You know, yep. That's phenomenal and intentional. Phenomenal only, but no intention. That's like pain. It has a feel, but it has no semantic content. It hurts. It's bright. It's hot. Right? Gotcha. Uh... Intentional but no phenomenal is the beliefs, desires, intentions, you know. Uh, snow is white. That doesn't have a feel to me, but supposedly has a semantic content. And then that which has no intentional or phenomenal properties, and that would be the merely physical, like atoms and stars and planets and all rocks. the physical shit. And rocks. Yeah. And they think they can divvy up the entire universe into that table. Okay. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Okay, so it's interesting because he's doing something for them that they might wish to have done themselves in a table. Right. He's trying to give them their best case or whatever, like go through and reconstruct a, something. It looks good to me. Yeah. Like, I mean, just in terms of its aesthetic. I'm like, oh, yeah. I like that. But I oh, would. This, but I, I love would. these squares. Yeah, yeah. You would love the little fucking... <laughs> There's a figure! Oh, man! I'm a visual creature! Oh, yeah! What are they? Is that one numbered 1.2 or what? What's the number on that figure? Mm, oh, I yeah. love those. Fucking got that 1.2, <laughs> motherfucker. 1.3b. Anyway, so he's saying, why would we do that? Well, he just did it. He's saying that that's what they have done, and right. that it's an odd thing to do. Cause what makes it odd? Outside of the fish and the bicycle, I think just that it seems to those of us who aren't immersed in it, if we're able to step outside of it and say, huh. That's interesting. I didn't even really think about it before. But they did unify those two things. And I can't, a priori, come up with a reason to unify them. Pains and beliefs seem pretty different. Why would we want to categorize them under the same heading? Other than, again, as we talked about earlier, well, that's how it's been done. That's how I learned it. That's how I was acculturated. And this idea of a purple cow, that falls under the category of both those things united. Is that right? I guess so. Yeah, I think, I mean, that it, makes some sense. Well, then, what's Like a is? mental image, to the extent you can have one. But you see, that can't be in your mirror, because you've never seen a purple cow. I mean, you'd rather see than be one, but you haven't seen one. Yet. Uh, okay, but... Um, I never hope to see one, personally. What's another example that I can chew on that's pains and beliefs joined together? Imagine a pirate. How <laughs> Not many... a great title for, a, for an episode. <laughs> I told there's going to be a bunch. How many buttons are on his jacket? 
Twenty-nine. Like you don't know, and you can't count them, right? You can't. You. If I say, imagine a pirate. Can you do that? And you're like, yeah. You can see it in your mind's eye, right? Yes, I can. Yes. Well, count. You know how many? Can you count? Yes. Do you know what buttons are? Yes. Well, how many buttons are on that pirate's jacket? Uh, I don't know. Or you can make it up afterwards and confabulate. Yeah. But there is no answer to those <coughs> questions. I don't even know if this is helping. This is it's just not, another meme that I... It's totally not helping. <laughs> it's not helping. All right. <laughs> well, what's, what's Papain's and Beliefs... Uh, like, what is he driving at in that quadrant? All right. Well, here's some... Uh, let's just do another quote thing. Okay. He calls these people the neo-dualists. Anyone who believes in the qualia or whatever that you and me and Keith Frankish don't like. <laughs> in the case of phenomenal properties, there is no appearance-reality distinction. Feelings just are appearances. Their reality is exhausted by how they seem. They are pure seemings. John Searle, etc. Right? That think that. So Rorty's question to them is, why should this epistemic distinction reflect an ontological division. Why should the epistemic privilege that we all have of being incorrigible about how things seem to us reflect a distinction between two realms of being? So he is trying to move back to this whole language game thing. All these pseudo-philosophical problems are just being entrenched in a vocabulary and a way of speaking. So he says, all right, what unites Belief talk and pain talk is that the rest of us can't tell you you're wrong when you make a claim. I believe that I'm currently imagining a purple cow. My foot hurts. What's similar about those two? Rorty says, I'll tell you what's similar. I, sitting over here across the room from you, can't prove you wrong. What else is there? You know, and then it again falls back on the whole satire thing. I can tell you at least one thing that's similar about them. But if what I'm saying is all there is, that's not enough to legitimate ontology, because my distinction is epistemic. You get away with it, in Robert Anton Wilson phrase, realize what you can get away with, or whatever. <laughs> Mind talk, you can get away with incorrigibility claims. I know how I feel, you can't prove me wrong. Yeah. That's what unites those two, in Rorty's opinion. And that's not enough to do ontology. Does that help? Yeah, I mean, because there's really nothing to talk about. It's over as soon as you say it. What do you mean? You just made a claim. I can't investigate. I just have to accept it. And then what? Yeah. It's over. We can't go further than that somehow. Yeah. There's no ashtray. You can't. Yeah, go in your mind and bring me the purple cow or whatever. Yeah, and you're like, bring well, me I, what it is. I can't. I can't. Yeah. Um, that one's really tough, though. We've had some conversations with just strangers, I feel like, online. Where they're just like, nope. Like, they're just a refusal to... I don't even know what they're holding on to, but whatever. I'm always surprised, I guess, as you mentioned earlier tonight, when that happens. When someone's like, no, this is the way it is, and I like it, and yeah. whatever. So the whole ashtray thing doesn't even come into play. That's just not... That's not the point, you know? Mm -hmm. What did it, What did What's-his-name say about data? My experience is data, or something like that. The... Guy who Dennett's always mad at. Oh, he's another consciousness guy. Chalmers? Yeah. What does he say about consciousness? It's like, is you know, something yeah, like it, reports it, it, are it data? The, yeah, well, no, the Dennett is fine with the reports being data yeah, yeah, or whatever, no, but, but there are other people who just say that the the seemings, right? Seemings are data. 
And then it's like, well, the reports, I'll accept the reports of the seemings, but you're kind of begging the question if you go all the way to just taking the seemings themselves as foundational. Because in, I can't see in like, the end. All that's, that's all, your report, you know. But that's yeah. That's what it. That's what. That's banking everything on the report. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to look inside yourself. <laughs> Sorry. You're supposed. Clearly, to there's nothing in there. Uh, if there was anything in there, I wouldn't be doing this there right ain't now. No purple cows. So here's a there's another title candidate coming up here, mm. right? Not too many. Not too many. Rorty is saying that what's really going on here is just an extension of Plato's muddled attempt to talk about adjectives as if they were nouns. And I really like that phrase. <laughs> talk about adjectives like they're nouns. So his argu- this one is a little... It either is argumentative or I can easily make it argumentative. But he's saying, quote, The neo-dualist is no longer talking about how people feel but about feelings themselves as little self-subsistent entities. He has, in fact, modeled pains, parentheses, or other qualia, on universals, like Platonic forms. The only way to associate the intentional, parentheses, that's the whole uh, intentionality in philosophy of mind is aboutness, or, you know, that this thought, or this sentence, or this something, somehow points at, refers to, or is about an object. To put it oxymoronically, mental particulars, unlike mental states of people, turn out to be universals. The only way to associate the intentional with the immaterial is to identify it with the phenomenal, and that the only way to identify the phenomenal with the immaterial is to hypostasize universals, then think of them as particulars, rather than abstractions from particulars. The mental-physical distinction is parasitic on the universal-particular distinction. We simply lift off a single property from something, like being red, then treat that itself as if it were a subject of predication. A platonic form is merely a property considered in isolation and considered as capable of sustaining causal relations. Tons of stuff in there, right? This is why I'm saying there's 400 fucking pages of that shit, and I'm trying to put it in two hours. Well, but the move that I that there's like, gonna be multiple parts to this one. Figure out a place to end it, and then we'll do the next part. You piece of part of that's just the pee break. Oh, that's true. Um, mental physical is parasitic on universal particular is the the interesting point that he's making there. So the universal particular distinction is about the Platonic forms question. Is that a chair? What makes it a chair is that it somehow participates in a relationship to the formal chair that is somehow in another realm that all of our souls existed in before we endured the trauma of birth and forgot what it was like to be in the realm of the forms. That there is somewhere the abstract notion of what it takes to be a chair, the perfect chair. Perfect triangle, perfect circle. Perfect, perfect, perfect. And then the, all the things that we call in our world of particulars, in daily life, the individual objects, that we call those things, they're somehow related to the form. Yeah. That's the whole move of universal to particular. And Rorty's claiming that that's what these 
qualiophiles, these mind believers, the traditional philosophers, are doing in the mental physical. They're taking uh, some property like, well, I'm looking at this apple and it's red. And this is the mistaking adjectives for nouns thing. I'm going to take the redness out somehow, <laughs> push it up into a separate realm of the forms, so that it is now a thing. I add ness to it, and now I've turned it into an object. Perfect object. And it's perfect. <laughs> and that this individual instance of an apple slash me perceiving the apple, me interacting with it, experiencing the redness, is my mind accessing this formal thing, the, the, the universal of redness. And he's saying that move is what you people are doing. So first you take the, let's see, what was, there was the phenomenal and the intentional. The intentional is collapsing into the phenomenal, isn't that what he said? So that anytime something means something, it's like it has a property. Like, and then we go to the old <coughs> famous Hoynean or whatever question about what is it? or Davidson or somebody. You take the sentence, snow is white in English, and shine at Weiss in German, or whatever, and somehow those are supposed to mean, quote-unquote, the same thing. And that Rorty is saying, well, that's the same move. It's that you've taken the meaning out, the proposition, so you've got sentences and propositions, like you have apples and redness. Sentences are what you deal with. That's what you exchange down here in the world of edifying philosophy and in your human conversation. You exchange sentences. If you want to be an intentional realist, you think there are also propositions, which are some kind of platonic form that embodies the real meaning, and it's in some other realm that you can't access, and blah. <coughs> yeah. So he's saying that the, the intentionality and phenomenality are both working that way and that it's a stupid fucking move to do wherever you do it. So like he's, he's combining that move with the other premise of the sort of historical, satirical premise that I can show you, and this is the kind of detail thing that I'm not going to go through, but it's in the book. If I can show you that the reason we talk this way has a very clear historical textual trajectory. I can do a genetics of where that language game came from. Mm -hmm. Show me something more than that. It's at least a language game, but I can explain the language game without it being true that there's some formal realm that you're accessing when you look at an apple or say that snow is white. And if you think you're accessing another realm when you say, when you look at an apple, you're like, ha, huh. Like, I don't even need to prove that wrong. Nobody thinks that in 1980. We're pat, right? You don't think that. That's a, okay. I have thoughts. Good. So there's this mathematician. Uh, he's an applied mathematician who's done a lot of really interesting work. You pro we, I think we follow him on Twitter. Whatever. It doesn't matter. Steven Strogatz, <clears throat> but he's American, teaches at Cornell, and he writes popular books about math. And I haven't read all of it yet. But he makes a good point that they, I guess, in a way, really don't teach in, you know, your Calculus 4 class or whatever, or Calculus 1 or whatever. And that point is that um, one of the things that we're doing with Calculus is we're breaking everything up into smaller parts because it's easier to solve problems that are, you know, in parts than it is to try and solve the whole damn thing. And then when we're done 
making sure we solved all the little parts. Then we add them all back together, and that's sort of our little picture of what's going on. So imagine he has a nice little diagram of a perfect circle. And in that, we start out with a triangle, connecting points within that circle. And then we do a square. And then we do, I don't know, stop sign or whatever, the octagon. And all, we just keep going, point, 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 point. And we keep getting smaller and smaller lines between closer and closer points. But we never actually get a perfect circle, no matter how many times we do it. It's kind of going back to the Zeno paradoxes yep. thing. Okay. So his whole thing is essentially how I would memeticize that, is people who think there's a redness of red are trying to divide by zero. There is no dividing by zero. It's 0.0001 or whatever, and you can get six billion pieces, but you're never going to get infinity because infinity is something we do as a tool to be able to try and approximate what we're doing with creating or recreating the shape of something. We're just trying to get a sense of like, oh, okay, this is the shape. And that's what it sounds like to me when people are doing the whole redness of red thing. They're trying to divide by zero, and that's the logical rule in calculus that we don't do and his whole thing is that there's a history of people in math believing in that and that's oftentimes it gets out of whack and then they have to tame it back down everybody like, okay we're not really dividing by zero you know like it's just we're breaking it down and we're trying to do lots of little <coughs> solutions or you know solve lots of little tiny problems and then we're going to bring it back together but that's all we're doing there's no infinity there's no dividing by zero that doesn't happen and that's what it sounds like in philosophy that some of these people like Dennett and Rorty and uh, probably Wittgenstein have been trying to do is saying, we're just doing language games. We're not actually touching perfect circles or perfect redness or anything like that. But in philosophy, you guys have never actually like had that thing where you like tamp it down and go, okay, okay, we're okay, we're good. We're not going to divide by zero. Whoo! You know, like that is, as he accounts, this guy, Stephen Strogatz, that's happened a couple different times in mathematics over the past 2,000 years. Holy shit, we should publish that fucking thing. I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, I think that's a wonderful analogy for this, if I'm understanding it. Mm -hmm. And it's, you could look at it as the notion of zero or infinity, same thing, right? The, the idea is the limit. And right. that exactly. if you keep putting a plus one-sided polygon inside a circle in the limit... You're approaching making a circle. Right. But you can a circle. Like, you can add one to infinity and you never get there no. or whatever, canter, blah, 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 blah. Right. And that the there is a tendency in philosophy to want to neglect, forget, purposefully break that rule and just say, Nope, I did it. Right. I added one to the I'm there. Google Agon and I made it. And I made a circle. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I did it. I caught up to the quarter, please, or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So it's that. I think that's kind of what I hear when I see that, that type of thing. And I'm glad I've read that book because he's saying, as someone who's a mathematician, it says like, no one talks about this stuff in math, you know. And he's well respected, mm -hmm. meaning he's honest. He's not trying to like dupe anybody, or he's not a humongous careerist or whatever. Yeah. So Rorty's point there is. All that is needed to dissolve the mind-body problem is to be a nominalist, which is the opposite of a you know believing in universals. Mm -hmm. A nominalist is saying, nope, there's just chairs, 
<laughs> there's that one and there's this one and right. whatever. And we, as a culture, as a community, we yeah. can choose to use the same linguistic label for the two things. But it's us and our choice. And we are making that choice. Sartre existentialism. Nice. And we're not offloading that onto some platonic realm and think that there's an essence of chairness and go around discovering whether or not this object really has the is a chair or not. This is what goes Nonsense. back to your whole offsetting of responsibilities, right? Where yeah. you don't have to take responsibility for it. It either is or isn't a chair. It has nothing to do with me. Yeah. It's whether it really has chairness in it. Yeah, right. No. It's whether you're going to choose to call it a chair and defend it against all comers if you need to. It's They're a like, choice. I, I know I always go back to this. And I, I was just, I mean, like a lot of people impressed, but there's that whole scene where the Joker in the Dark Knight's talking to Commissioner Gordon, and Commissioner Gordon's like, you've got these people held in some place or other. And he's like, I was here, you know, in the holding cell. I couldn't have been responsible for anything. That seems like what people are doing. So they're just like, chairness of chair. I, I yeah, it's, a, a, a chair, it's got chairness. I don't know. It all, Cody Julie. The way though, sorry. <laughs> Since this week we're mostly dodging current events, this reminds me of that current event meme that I like so much because we are currently residing in Oregon. The governor of Oregon is named oh, Kate Brass. Yes, yes. And we're undergoing this uh, putative this pandemic right now. And when asked, <laughs> and now, you know, the pandemic is old now. So whether or not it's serious has become irrelevant. Right. And now we're just all bored. So we're interested in getting the fuck out of our houses, whether or not we should. No one cares about the science anymore, if they ever did. We only care about what we want to do it. So they're protesting, and they say, Hey, Kate, can we leave yet? And of course, <laughs> she pulls a classic rhetorical move of offloading responsibility by saying, I don't decide when stay-at-home ends. The virus decides. <laughs> oh! And I just wanted, yeah. you know, jump off a roof or get a rifle and get on the roof or something. Jump like, off a cliff underwater or something. Yeah, because <laughs> that's so classic and frustrating to me. Yeah. Yep. Offload that responsibility, Kate Brown. Unless we are willing to revive Platonic and Aristotelian notions about grasping universals. Parenthetical satire. That's what satire means. <laughs> He doesn't argue against it. He just says, unless you want to fucking do this, which I know you don't. Mm -hmm. We shall not think that knowledge of general truths is made possible by some special metaphysically distinctive ingredient in human beings. We shall not make sense of the notion of two ontological realms, the mental and the physical. We shall not be able to use the notion of entities whose appearance exhausts their reality to bolster the mental-physical distinction. Mm -hmm. The notion that there is a problem about mind and body originated in the 17th century attempt to make the mind a self-contained sphere of inquiry, nothing more. Fuck you guys. <laughs> That's a Rorty quote. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's how he attempts to get rid of minds. In brief outline. <laughs> Unless you want to be a jackass. Dun, mm -hmm. dun, dun. <laughs> okay, end of commentary about that, huh? I think so. You want... It's not worth a whole nother episode by now. Because there's only one piece left. Oh, okay. And we'll just have to do it fast. Oh, we have right. a problem with that. Oh, is this going to be a... Like, what are they, a lightning round? <laughs> Rorty, lightning round. <laughs> well, we already talked about 
part of this, because the next segment is about the mirror and about his oversimplified hyperbolic version of the alternative side being that they want this uh, confrontation thing. And he wants to replace confrontation with conversation type <laughs> candidate. The memes are endless. I kind of think that one of Rorty's major general tactics is not always in arguing against something, but in a form of satire. And he's going to do it again in this chapter. He just wants to point out how absurd and unacceptable the tradition we've inherited really is and ask the audience to choose between them. How's he going to do that here in, uh, you know, section two, mirroring. It's like, <laughs> it's stupid to, be, to think you're mirroring. What do you, you know? The notion that there is an autonomous discipline called philosophy, distinct from and sitting in judgment upon both religion and science, is of quite recent origin. He attributes it to Hobbes, Descartes, and Spinoza, but not really flourishing until Kant and after. Hmm. The eventual demarcation of philosophy from science was made possible by the notion that philosophy's core was theory of knowledge, a theory distinct from the sciences because it was the foundation of the sciences. Okay. Residence! Residence? <laughs> uh, uh, Donna Reed? Sorry. To Go think on. of knowledge which presents a problem about which we ought to have a theory is a product of viewing knowledge as an assemblage of representations, this product of the 17th century. I think I read this quote already. What? It sounds very familiar to God me, but maybe I just it. read it early. Pour yourself another dram. Too late. <laughs> so, okay, we're making an analogy between part one, where Descartes invented the mind. The invention of the mind in Rorotian terms is acceptance of the language game, though. So in this one, in the mirroring section, we are doing what? Providing a field of inquiry which seems prior, within which certainty, as opposed to mere opinion, becomes possible. And we christen it epistemology. It's a non-empirical project, a matter of armchair reflection, capable of producing necessary truths. Kant reconciled the Cartesian claim that we can have certainty only about our ideas with the fact that we had certainty, in other words, a priori knowledge, about what seemed not to be ideas. And ideas here is in the another term of art from... Lockean philosophy about the, you know, it's, and in the Platonic tradition, that capital I ideas are these clear and distinct separate things that we can access and process with these magical capital M minds. You know, there's capitals all over the place. Why do people do that? In this, what Kant thought we could do with the synthetic a priori. And I'm like, why the hell did we want to dive into this chapter now? <laughs> We can always complain in a postmodern sense about why people privilege one thing over another. Anyway, sorry. Ah! A priori, a posteriori distinction is supposedly, does it have any empirical content? Did I have to look at the world to figure it out? If so, that's a posteriori. That's oh, yeah. after the sense data has arrived. Yep. A priori, to the extent, if we believe in it at all, is the armchair stuff. That which I can derive while sitting before my fire in a bathrobe. Hence why people who talk about Bayesian 
you know, theorem and things like that, Bayesian statistics. They talk about posterior probabilities. It's what is your probability once you've gained some information about what's going on. Mm-hmm. That was just an aside. You're welcome. Oh, so like regular probability or whatever is a priori and Bayesian is a posteriori. Is that the point? To an extent, but it's really just baked into the system of Bayesian statistics. And you start out with a guess and then you kind of work in the knowledge that you gain or information that you require over time. And you start incorporating that into what your probability would be. Go! You got your priors. Your a priori. (laughs) Yeah, you got your priors you got your posterior probabilities. Anyway, talking about ratios of those things. Synthetic a priori. Synthetic meaning you just... Okay, it's math. Yeah, I think. I I mean, obvious oversimplification, but that's where my brain usually goes, and Kant did write about 7 plus 5 is 12 a lot, for some reason. Kant wrote 7 plus 5? Yeah. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because that's supposed to be the paradigm case of synthetic a priori. I can do it from my armchair. I don't need to go study the world to know that 7 plus 5 is 12. But it's also not just baked in the cake. It's not like um, effects post-seed their, uh, or, you know, causes precede the effects. Or was like it's, 1 plus 1 equals 2 taken or something like that? <laughs> like, well, like... that's, I mean, one might argue that that's closer to a very, very basic concept that might just be pre-programmed. Right? And 7 one plus 5 two. is built upon that. But that's not, you know, that's so complex. That it needs to be, I might have the concept of 7 and 5, but then I still need to synthesize those together somehow to derive the 12. But I don't need to go do a scientific experiment. So there's a synthesis that occurs, but that synthesis is still in my armchair, so it's synthetic a priori. It says Kant. Yeah. Rorty and I don't buy it. I don't know if I yeah. buy it either, but anyway. Because it's, it's I don't know. So much of math is really rooted in logic, you know? And so for logic, there might be some kind of core relationships, right? But 7 plus 5 seems like it's like, I don't know. You could find other ways to 12 or, you know what I mean? Like there's just, you can confirm, you know, you can do things like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm off my rocker here. And It's I can, my fault. And I can rock. No, not really. It's, I can swivel in this chair. I can't really rock in it. I can lean back in it. <sighs> if, so, if or to the extent that 7 plus 5 is 12, that is what Rorty would call a quote-unquote rational certainty. It's just a derivation of pure reason, no empirical mess involved. But what does he want to do instead? I wrote the second half of Rorty's satire is here. So let's hope that I was right. Okay. And when I quote this, it'll all make sense. Of course it will. If, however, we think of rational certainty as a matter of victory in argument rather than relation to an object known, we shall look toward our interlocutors rather than our faculties for the explanation of the phenomenon. If we think of our certainty about the Pythagorean theorem, for example, as our confidence based on experience with arguments of such matters, that nobody will find an objection to the premises from which we wish to infer it, our certainty will be a matter of conversation between persons rather than interaction with non-human reality. 
we shall not see a difference in kind between necessary and contingent truth. At most, we'll see a difference in degree of ease in objecting to our beliefs. We shall be where the sophists were before Plato. We will be looking for an airtight case rather than an unshakable foundation. In the logical space of reasons, rather than the causal relation to objects. And, I mean, I don't know if you were able to take anything from that, but I like all of that, and I'd rather be in that place. The sophists? I'd rather be a sophist. I'd rather be looking for an airtight case than an unshakable foundation. I'd rather be involved in a matter of conversation between interlocutors than believing that I was somehow relating to reality. So when I come up with this Pythagorean theorem That's thing, the whole Kuhnian things hanging together. An airtight case. I mean, it's closer to that than touching reality. Yeah. The sellers thing about how things hang together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The sellers thing. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Wrong dude. <laughs> I mean, Kuhn took it from him. But yeah. Which I'm much more interested in myself. Uh, only from the standpoint of... Um, there's less pressure. <laughs> Sorry to add that to the mix. From people than from reality? Just to have, to, you know, there's less pressure to try and make things hang together. You know, it's, there's less pressure to, to do a puzzle, you know, than there is to, I don't know, conceive that you must do something uh, that might have, like, consequences for a person you care about or whatever, and you have to play the game of like well if i you know this if my baby jumps out a window or whatever and from 10 stories up it might die you know that kind of thing like there's less pressure oh of things hanging together in a conversation than in it just seems to me like daily life right it's like if, if if i was to think about what politics is then i would think that politics is something that uses the rhetoric of a foundation but is really just looking for an airtight case you know or whatever Mm -hmm. it's just looking for a way to convince it's not really looking for you know the truth or whatever it's just trying to win this little piece but it really works well to kind of like go the truth seeking route you know to talk about a foundational thing like there's some moral imperative or something like that there's just more pressure in that situation for the animal of a human, you know, which it seems to me like Rorty and Nietzsche want us to kind of move away from, maybe Wittgenstein as well, and acknowledge the thing we're actually doing, which is, you know, just breaking things up into smaller pieces and trying to put them back together again, or talking about language, and it's just the words that we use, and they they don't, there's no beyond, you know, major consequences beyond that with respect to the tools that we're using to talk about it or whatever. It's like people want to use the weight of something in order to convince you of whatever so that they can win the game that they're actually playing. I don't know. I could be way off and this will be cut out. (laughs) Thank God. I knew it should have been two parts. Is this the same? Is this in line with what you were saying? I... When I read that part, I'm like, well, those two things seem to me to be the same anyway. It's just a difference of rhetoric. Because this unshakable foundation itself, even with that term, 
is inherently relative, because shakeability depends on how strong a force you have to grasp and move it, right? Like, right. it's all relative to the conversation in the first place. And the only difference is, do you package it as a case or as a foundation? But either way, what you're trying to do is persuade your interlocutors to accept it. The sky is falling, you know, like that kind of like thing seems to be what you really want is for people to do some particular thing, like move indoors or whatever. Yeah. And, uh, you know, COVID's going to get you or whatever it is. And you use something that has a lot of pressure in order to create, uh, you know, or mobilize or convince or whatever. It's, 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 you don't have an airtight case because you don't have a lot of information, whatever it is. And so you got to use some other means upon which to convince people. And the more strident you are in that process, the more foundational you make it seem. That's what I'm trying and to say. There's therefore, more pressure. the more leverage you have right. to institute policy, which is why That's what I was thinking about with politics. the stay-at-home order and the politics or whatever and the current events... It doesn't work too well to say there's an unknown virus, a new novel coronavirus on the surface of Earth that has a, an unknown mortality rate and contagion factor, and we sort of think that the best response might be if you would stay home a while. doesn't work as well politically as saying, the sky is falling. Like, you all, you are all going to die, and everyone you love is going to die, and you're saving lives! Right. If you, you know, those things work much better rhetorically. Right. So, whatever the case might be that you want people to do something, instead of just telling them that, because you, you don't trust that they would acknowledge or appreciate that, or whatever it is, you do go for these heavy hitters. And then the response is usually coming up with heavy hitters as well, which is like the authoritarians are trying to, you know, it's an experiment to keep you in line. <laughs> Foundational. It just seems politics uses that move rather than the information that they do have at hand, which is we don't know. And this is a strategy, you know, to, you know, assess the risk and, and not have things go way out of hand because we, you know, we're clearly up against something. You know, look, why not have it just be aliens from a more advanced civilization arriving? And then what do we do? You know what I mean? Novel coronavirus seems like the same kind of idea. And here we are in this situation where we don't know what they want. You know, (laughs) but then half the people are like, fight. And the other people are like, submit and do that. You know, whatever, whatever they want. You know, White House lawn, land there, whatever it is. That's to me seems to be the politics. And that. Maybe it seems people have really bought into uh, because it's, I don't know, it's emotional or whatever. I kind of think about, and I don't have any quotes from Nietzsche, but I kind of feel like that's the thing, like we need to move beyond that. Maybe that's the supermensch or whatever, right? The ubermensch or, you know, superman. Like move beyond being overwhelmed by that. It's like you see a bear, you're on a hike. What do you do? Turn and run? You know, like, that's probably going to end poorly for you. You know, like, you see people maybe have some information and they make a decision like, all right, I'm just going to slowly back away or I'm going to, you know, whatever it is, I'm not going to do this because I learned that this doesn't work or whatever. I'm not saying this necessarily leads to airtight cases. (laughs) I'm just trying to say that foundational stuff can be kind of destructive. And uh, 
it's a more pressure-filled situation, it just seems. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to bring him up. Sam Harris. He says, oh, I went to every Rorty lecture he ever gave or whatever, and he's wrong or whatever. But what does Sam Harris do? He applies a tremendous amount of pressure in his discussions or arguments or whatever you want to call them to get himself, you know, to, to win an argument or whatever it is. It always comes down to some kind of dire situation like you live or you die. It's like this heavy, heavy thing. It's never an airtight case. It's always foundational, you know? There is mm-hmm. something moral that we have, you know? And so these people are wrong. You know, it's this rhetoric. I suppose Hitler probably did the same thing and any any other kind of dictator. Mm. Mm. Anyway, all I'm trying to say is it just seems to me like there's just so much pressure when you read... From Rorty, I just I I feel that tension in my shoulders when I start to think about something. Somebody saying something is critically foundational, or whatever it is. I'm just like, you know, like, you know, it almost seems like you need to bow to sensei, bow to sensei, you know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, bow to your sensei, bow to your sensei. That I don't, I don't like. I guess. Well, capital T they would <laughs> rather you feel that way. I think so. Than think. Yes. And to go back to the whole edification point or whatever, and the, like, the way we talk about it nowadays in the terminology of critical thinking or whatever, we'd like it if more kids were taught how to think critically than to download textbook knowledge, right? That's something that some of us would prefer if our pedagogy moved in the direction of, but it doesn't. The degree to which it seems to be doing so is insufficient but yeah it's it's losing ground i think yeah right now right now maybe it'll gain some later i don't know but in the past it's lost ground and gained ground and all that kind of stuff but yeah you, you, but you that, that's more like advanced. making cases if you're a critical thinker you're like what's your argument and if you're a foundationalist you're like well what's the book say right, right. you know like there what it is to be acculturated enculturated is to just learn the facts. Well, you know, what is it? But then Rorty's like, yeah, well, where did those quote-unquote capital F facts come from? And then we can get all postmoderny about it and say, well, you know, it was written by the patriarchy and they have reasons to privilege certain information or stories or narratives than sure, others. And right. blah, blah, blah. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, you want to you wanna couch it in those terms, you, you know, preferably... Otherwise, you then start to do the foundational stuff, you know. They're out to get you, you know. And then you have the militia at the, you know, the, the state house lawn saying, Freedom! You know, and it's just like, come on. <laughs> Open the nail salons now! You know, it's just like, okay. And they're all in, like, fatigues with, like, fucking F-16s or whatever the fuck that shit is. AK-47s? I don't know. I'm sure weaponry has advanced since uh, M16s. F16s are a plane. M16s are a gun. <laughs> anyway, they're there and they're ready to fight. I hope they don't uh, we don't need them. <laughs> but I'm not afraid to call them if I have to. Anyway. Oh my god. How where The are we night going? is long. Jesus. We can't do the rest. Yeah. Right. Rorty wants to replace the whole Cartesian minds, Lockean ideas, and Kantian apodictic certainties. Whoa. 
Word of the day. I didn't know this one either, but Apodictic is now one of my new favorites. Apodictic. A-P-O? Uh, yeah. And that means... That means, uh... What is apo? Apos. Demonstrably, necessarily, or self-evidently the case. We have prior episodes against... Self-evidence. Necessity and (laughs) self-evidence. But... Yeah, a lot of people like this apodictic stuff. Kant liked it a lot. And, uh... This, Clearly! This toddler doesn't. Anyway, Rorty wants to replace all of that with epistemic behaviorism, psychological nominalism, and ontological relativity! <laughs> all of which have a bunch of fancy quotes in the book and prepared, but are not going to be delivered to you right now because we have exceeded our time! Fuck. Yeah, sorry. On the dawdlers. But anyway, that's a few of the fucking ideas and stuff, hopefully, from Rorty's Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature. And let's all engage in the conversation of humankind more and stop being so apodictic! (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And see. Lost from the hurt that you have caused. 